I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? Today, I'm joined by Erinch Sahan. Erinch was the former chief executive of the World Fair Trade Organization. He previously spent seven years at Oxfam and is currently the business and enterprise lead at the renowned Donut Economics Action Lab. Erinch also acts as a senior associate at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership in Oxford. Among some of his greatest, but perhaps lesser known achievements is the fact that Erinch was almost single-handedly responsible for this very show. Few people know, probably not even Erin, that Maslow never planned on producing a podcast. We needed a way to share a complex narrative about what we were doing via a medium that people were used to consuming new and sometimes complex concepts. So we recorded a chat with a banking and economics expert who asked us lots of questions about what we're doing and why. And we started sharing that with people via a Google Drive link that absolutely nobody opened. So we posted it as a podcast. Somehow, Erin found that podcast and shared his views of it online. This is some of what he said. This could be the mother of all disruptions about to hit consumer finance. The market advantages seem huge and the financial model sounds tough. It's hard not to get excited listening to Kane Jackson describe Maslow. After that, people from all around the world started reaching out to be on our podcast. So we quickly came up with a plan for one. And here we are now speaking to global thought leaders, which brings me to Erin. Kane, what a pleasure and a privilege really to join you and to be a small part of the journey of what Maslow is and the work that you're creating. We live in a pretty self-centered, egocentric world that conditions us from a young age to aim for what has to be said as a self-centered definition of success, of achieving wealth, accumulating assets and property and seeking more and more largely for ourselves. And accordingly, a great majority of people spend their lives paving a pathway toward that goal. How did you into a career that is defined by a belief that you should contribute more to the world than you take from it? I grew up in Sydney, in Australia, and we were migrants. We didn't have much growing up. So my initial inclination, actually, as I studied and went to university and beyond, was to pursue financial security, like pursue the safety that I think a lot of first-generation migrants would probably um, associate with. There's a sense of uncertainty in your life. Parents don't speak English. You're in a, in a little bit of financial peril growing up. So you do the things that you think will give you financial security. So I studied law and you worked in business for a while and dabbled in, in various sort of uh, corporate careers. But every single time I went down one of these paths, something didn't feel right. For me, it was the pursuit of selling more, the pursuit of growing profits and dividends, all of that just somehow for one reason or another felt like not the way I wanted to spend my life. And we spent so much of our time at work and, and I had a crisis actually at the time I was working at Procter and Gamble in Sydney. And, and I remember driving home in my nice company car one day after work and just bawling my eyes out and saying, is this it? Is this all that I'll do in my life? I'll try to sell more shampoo for a living. Um, and I decided actually I'm going to pivot and I ended up pivoting towards the aid and development world. I went and 
volunteered in a refugee camp in West Africa, working with Liberian refugees. I ended up working at AusAid, which was the Australian aid agency at the time, based out of Canberra, but I worked mostly in Indonesia. And I kept pulling on this thread of, well, I saw what business was like from the inside. I saw the way it was designed. I saw what it was capable of and what it wasn't capable of. What can we do to influence the way it impacts, particularly people living in poverty? And when I kept pulling out that question of that thread, I ended up where I currently am, which is asking the question of, wait a minute, we can decide how we design our companies. We can decide what their purpose is. We can decide and shape and design their, their inner workings and their structures. Let's kick off a whole global movement that doing exactly that. So when I came across your work, Cade, it felt like, wow, you've reached some kind of a similar conclusion. You've decided that the way that we design a financial services company will dictate the impact it has on the world. So let's design it differently. And I'm a bit obsessed with that question as a result. Change. Well, I want to go back just a couple of steps before we go forward. How old were you when you drove home from work and burst into tears? I was 25. I remember it vividly. I remember just wanting to drink the Kool-Aid. My colleagues were just so excited about improvements in monthly sales and market share. And I remember really wanting to embrace that. I think, yeah, that, that's what that I want this to drive me because it would feel safe, right? Like it would feel like you're not challenging the core tenets of the economic system when you do well, financial institutions do well, rich shareholders do well. The economic system encourages what you're trying to do. So you're working with it. You're, you're not challenging any difficult bits of it. I really wanted to be in that space because it's hard to do something different. It's much easier just to, to fold in and think I'm doing what the system is incentivizing me to do and will reward me for doing this. But there was just something that didn't sit right about that. It felt like we're in the 21st century now. We designed these corporate structures for the 20th century before we really understood it, the limits of the planetary boundaries and the effects of growing inequality and the instability. And it wasn't designed to do the things we now want it to do. It was the, the Milton Friedman era of, you know, the business of business is business. That was 1960s, 70s. That was a different era. And somehow just buying in to that structure and thinking that's all it is and that's all it can be, it felt emptying. It felt somehow like I was leaving behind the realities of the world and instead buying into something that, that is going to drain me of my substance. That, that's genuinely how it felt. Can you think of any particular people that stand out as being especially influential um, to the view that you've, you've come to form now? I, I wasn't that well read at the time. I, I did, you know, I, I studied law and I studied business and you know, and, but, but essentially I was trained in neoliberal thinking, you know, I was trained in well, the, the law is there to essentially protect property and capital and business and finance, which is what I studied, was there to essentially grow capital and grow wealth. You know, so everything I learned, all the theories, all the thought leaders I came across were in service to that paradigm. That's what Sydney University law taught. And that's what UNSW, you know, commerce taught. And I'm sure it's evolved a bit since then, probably not fundamentally, but I did come across a few things. And I remember reading one researcher who looked at the impacts of inequality and found that actually humans are happier in more equal societies, even mm. if they have a little bit less. I'm not sure they need to have a little bit less in order to, to, to have a more equal society by them. But 
that really shifted my mindset because I remember the other thing I was doing at the time is I was co-hosting a, a regular program on SBS. On, it was a Turkish language program for the Turkish community. And it was a youth show we would do every Sunday. And there I would usually, we would talk about topical things, usually in Turkish. And I would usually take the more business focused, you know, economist sort of perspective on things. But I found it hard to defend suddenly when we started talking about inequality and I came across this research and I realized, actually, it's not about more, it's about fairness as well. And it's about equality and this matters. And suddenly I couldn't justify growing inequalities in societies just for the pursuit of more for some individuals. That just did not seem like it stacked up. And from there, a whole bunch of my thinking and my education unraveled. It's interesting. You've answered my next question, which was the drive to pursue positive change, I think is different in every person. Mine comes from a sense of injustice. I view that as sort of unfair. I, I like to ask people, does your drive to make positive change come more from a defensive position of wanting to avoid the bad things that you see around you? I guess maybe a, a reactive response to injustice, or is it more driven by optimism and having seen the best in people, you want to drive that forward as much as you can. And I think obviously you're an injustice kind of guy. I, that was my entry point into it. It yeah. wasn't injustice kind of guy. It was about the inequalities. It was about the human rights abuses. It was about deforestation and what happens in indigenous communities. Those things resonated early on. But the more I looked at the structures behind our economic system, whether it's the way banks are designed, the way the financial industry is designed more broadly, the way that companies and businesses and startups and venture capital, the way all of us design, it, it has an implicit assumption that we are greedy and we are only really concerned with our own wealth accumulation. And actually, I found that is not true. We actually are willing to sacrifice to create more fair societies. And in any case, if we were truly self-interest focused, we would want to protect the living world on which we depend. And we wouldn't want to be part of the destruction of it and the destabilization of it. I, I do hold a belief, an optimistic belief about human nature, that there's a competitive side to us and there's a cooperative and mutualistic side to us. And if we build all the institutions, all the incentive structures around fostering the competitive side, then of course you get outcomes that then prove itself. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when we decide to create structures that really play into our cooperative side, into our mutualistic side, into our sense of belonging and society and fairness and justice and all the positive attributes as well that, that sit within us, then you start to get those outcomes. So I think at, at the core of it now is a belief that, wait a minute, why have we embraced greed and competition and insecurity and very narrow versions of personal safety as being the defining characteristics of humans. And instead, why have we not created systems that foster the parts of us that are much better and, and also the parts of us that we need actually to solve the kind of challenges we now face as a global society? So now that we've figured out how you got to be where you are, I do want to have, I want to ask about your career. It seems pretty clearly to me that you're a a defiant realist with a big healthy serve of optimism to go along with that. I, I think that's one. But obviously you've been informed by some really unique experiences throughout your career. You've spent time in some of the poorest parts of the world. I want to ask about some of the career highlights and lowlights that inform 
what is a really optimistic view towards these problems we can solve. A lot of my career has focused particularly those seven years at Oxfam and those three and a half years at Welfare Trade Organization. We're working with and working for really the farmers, the workers, the artisans that are making and growing the things that end up in global supply chains. These often very abstract, disconnected, and in the language of supply chain world, traceable commodity chains, I ended up getting into the depths of them and meeting the farmers, meeting their community, meeting and understanding what they are facing and what they would ask for if they had a voice and if they had some power in, in these relationships. One highlight was in Indonesia when I was working for Oxfam. Well, highlight is kind of a low light because I remember going to the depths of Sumatra where you know, northern Sumatra, where a lot of the palm oil plantations are that go into all sorts of products, both food and non-food, by the way. It's such an important oil that, that comes out of palm that, um, that is grown in usually areas that were forested until not that long ago that have since been cleared. Lots of forest fires in order to clear the land. And this is really high biodiversity, rich kind of parts of the world. And, and I met this community, which is in the middle of a massive plantation. And when I first met them, they were like, everything's fine. We're very happy with the company that buys our palm oil. Most of us now work at the plantation. And after a while, some of the members of the community started confiding in me that actually they essentially got driven off their land, that this was a major corporation who had taken over the land. They challenged the local community because they didn't quite have all the right paperwork that some of it, but some of it not quite. And they were able to drive them off the land. And then they said, look, you can live in this little part of it if you supply palm oil to us at this price and if everyone in the community then works on the plantations next door so they ended up trapping them and in fact to get into the community you have to go through the palm oil plantation so they can close off the gates at any time and open the gates at any time yeah just there I, I saw a when people are very vulnerable they're not going to immediately tell you about the things they're facing they're not going to trust somebody so a lot of the auditing that happens, a lot of the lauded supply chain things that are going on by big companies who say, yeah, we set somebody, everything's great. Look how wonderful our initiative is. I learned how much crap is behind some of this. And this isn't the only example that confirmed that for me. But secondly, that when people have got zero power and they're trapped in the primary production bit where there isn't a lot of value added because the value added happens further up that chain that value chain that when the milling and processing and other things happen and then the branded products is where really the value is captured and eventually at retail as well. Um, they're trapped at the bottom, no power. The prices are incredibly low. And essentially these people need to be paid more. And yep. every single company that I engage with in the food industry, all the mainstream companies would all say, we're not talking price. We don't talk price. We don't talk about paying enough so people can make their basic needs we're not gonna they're gonna have to improve their own productivity i saw yeah. this in the tea industry i saw this in cocoa in all these industries the percentage of the value going to the farmers and the workers that actually grow and make the stuff is declining and the percentage of the total value going everybody else up the chain usually in terms of returns to investors is going up across the world and that that to me has been seminal there's been obviously positive sides of this where i've met people who are doing their own production, people like Pocari Chocolate in, in Latin America or Makita in Ecuador or organizations like Cafe Direct, which is co-owned by the farmers so that 
the branded product itself, the value from that goes back down to the farmers. When I meet these entrepreneurs and businesses that have shaped themselves deliberately to tackle the very problem I saw when I meet the communities, that gives me hope because that's what you can design for it. Once you're honest about the problem, once you're honest about wanting to talk about money and power, you can design a business that, that can thrive, but is deliberate and doesn't dodge and sweep under the carpet the difficult questions about power and money. And once you put them on the table and go, okay, let's design this thing differently, then I get inspired. Like all these social entrepreneurs and social enterprises I met that are deliberate to set themselves up to be in service of their communities, not in service of investors, that inspires me. And I see that as a possibility for all industries. The there are a lot of people that will know about Donut Economics Action Lab. But for those who don't know, what is Donut Economics and what are you guys all about? So Donut Economics essentially has a central observation at its heart. It says that we've got two boundaries we must not transgress. There's an ecological ceiling that it is composed of the nine planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists have told us we must not overshoot, we must not transgress. This is non-negotiable. You can't say, can we do a little bit more? carbon emissions, a bit more biodiversity loss? Can we acidify our oceans a little bit further, please? Or put a bit more fertilizer into the soil because our economic model requires it. But the planet just says, no, there's a limit to what we can do on this. But there's also a social foundation because we need an economy that meets the basic needs of everybody. So if you imagine two concentric circles, an outer circle, that is the planetary boundary, and an inner circle, that is a social foundation. It is a space between these two boundaries where humanity can have a safe and just space to oper operate. Our economies can be safe and just. Based on that, Kate Rayworth, my colleague and friend, wrote a book on donut economics that went through seven principles, ideas like being regenerative and distributive by design. Now, a whole bunch of things emerged out of this. It became a bit of a bestseller. Her TED talk did extremely well and still a big hit. And she got asked to speak on all sorts of platforms. And then people started springing up around the world saying, hey, we're putting these ideas into action in our neighborhood, in our city, in our business, in our investment portfolio. It became something that, that catalyzed a huge, diverse range of action and a diverse range of change makers around the world. And we decided, actually, let's create organizations to foster that. So what we are as Donut Economics Action Lab is a bit of a custodian of the concepts because we want to uphold the integrity of what this concept is and what the principles in the book are. But we also want to make sure that we are supporting all of the organizations, creating tools, materials, curation spaces, and a community of practice where people can join calls and discuss and co-create things. And we just try to foster that. So that's our role. And I lead the work on business and enterprise. And, and a lot of my work is on how do we foster all those amazing people across the business world who are creating, shaping, influencing the deep design of business. I want to get into some of the underlying technicalities of what we think are problems and, and get your thoughts, um, maybe even challenge you on a couple of things you've said. I want to talk about something that we think is a, a predominant general issue. So we've spoken a lot about a shareholder primacy on this show and speaking about the predominant problems in our economic and commercial models that exist in the world today. You've previously said, uh, I don't think we've invented yet the companies of the 21st century. We're still tweaking the 20th century ones and the ones we need for the 21st century where we're the first to realize the challenge ahead. 
I think we're going to be inventing these in the coming decades. And for that, we're going to need an open mind and innovation among us to think bigger than what's already present. But I really want to rip that apart. Now, we've said we've spoken a lot about shareholder primacy being one of the greatest contributors to the major issues that are affecting the world right now. And those issues are many and varied. But if we talk about them being the climate emergency, massive and growing wealth inequalities, uh, increasing political and social polarization, which is largely being driven by those growing inequalities, as well as the impact over democracy that a handful of huge wealth holders now have in terms of being able to drive government policy that benefits those wealth holders at the expense of the majority whose uh, voices are more and more getting drowned out. It can seem like a long bow to draw to blame all of this on shareholder primacy. And for those who don't know what that actually means, it's simply a company's legal obligation to maximise returns for shareholders. And this really ties into what you've spoken about previously quite a lot in terms of profit primacy. And I've read and listened to many of the things you've said, and you advocate towards challenging profit primacy and to companies pursuing impact and sharing benefit and delivering positive social and global change. As someone who exists in a space where we leverage people's pursuit of profit to build a net social good company, but we limit that profit so that it doesn't become extractive, I wonder if the terminology you use around challenging profit primacy is problematic because it almost suggests to people that the pursuit of profit is evil. What would you say yeah. about that? No, I think you're hitting a really important distinction here. And the word profit just means so many things to so many people. So I think there's improvements to be made here in the way we talk about it because profit is necessary for a business to exist. It's you don't want businesses just scraping by. You do want a healthy, dynamic, thriving business that is focused on the right things. I think, as you say, it's the extractive force and the extractive nature of certain kind of profit primacy that, that we're trying to hint at here, yep. rather than saying a pursuit of profit is a bad thing in and of itself. I think profit has a role to play in the operations of a company. And then it has a role to play in terms of what's then done with the surplus. And I think those are two separate conversations. So if we zoom into within the company itself, what I see in some of the workshops that, that I've run, and I've, we've done this now with about 500 companies where we ask them and we go through a methodology that draws out through the donut design for business tool, which is on our website, by the way, donuteconomics.org. We, we draw out through this methodology, the biggest, boldest ideas being regenerative by design and being distributive by design. So ecologically regenerative, socially distributive. And when we put the biggest ideas on the table, it does hit up against the pursuit of maximum profit sometimes. So you might need to, in order to unlock that business model, in order to pursue that strategy, in order to make that internal investment viable internally, you might need to have flexible margins, a different time horizon in terms of capital expenditure. You I might need to... You shift what you demand in terms of profit, in terms of pursuit of profit, in order to unlock some of these things. So, yeah. One of the things we advocate for relates to the legal definition of the responsibility a company has to its shareholders to maximise return. In Australia, we call that a fiduciary duty. Different countries call it different things. But the courts have generally defined that as 
the decisions that are in the best financial interest of shareholders. And at the moment, that definition is a lot like politicians. Its characteristics encourage a focus only on the short term of achieving the best financial outcomes in a short time frame. And it really disincentivizes, if not disqualifies, a longer term view of what's in the overall best interest of those shareholders. And I'm just staying at shareholders for now. We'll get to society later. If we look at ExxonMobil and Amazon as two examples, both companies have a legal obligation to pay as much return to their shareholders as possible. And those returns are measured annually and come from decisions that seek to drive annual profits. And maybe at best, those decisions really only look at a few years into the future. For ExxonMobil, that means selling as much oil as possible, which means extracting and then the subsequent burning of as much oil as possible. Uh, for Amazon, it means selling as many goods as possible, which they do by investing in scale that lowers its prices. And that pushes smaller businesses without that scale out of the market. In both cases, shareholders win from that year's performance. In fact, so do consumers. Oil gets them around in their cars, it gets their Amazon deliveries to their door, and those cheaper purchases mean they have more money in their pocket. I'm not entirely sure that profit primacy as, is as much of an issue here, and perhaps maybe it's the definition of best interests that overlays this debilitatingly short-term window of relevance to the decision-making that drives business activity. I'm not sure we ever win or reduce inequalities or slow climate change by arguing against this notion of profit. I think it's, it almost it polarizes people. I, this is where we might disagree. I think it goes against the innate human drive most people have of accumulating more and of this sort of selfish pursuit of more and more and sort of self-serving decisions. I feel like arguing against that and arguing that we're going to at least quickly um, get people to change away from that seems somewhat ignorant to some rigid truths around how we are wired, at least today anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for that point about that there is something dynamic in the entrepreneurial ecosystem that gets tapped into with the pursuit of the bottom line. And maybe there is a pursuit, a desire for more that a lot of humans have as well. We idolize that in those people that we put on those pedestals so much within this sort of consumerized society that we live in. Yeah, but I also I think part of that is because of the, a bit of an echo chamber that we've created in, in what we celebrate, how we celebrate it, and for the heropreneurs and the, the, the titan, the, the business world, we rarely celebrate the scientists that were part of the R&D team that got a nice salary but didn't become billionaires. Or yeah. we don't, so I, we could choose to shift what we focus on to celebrate as well and include the leadership, but also as well as everything else that goes into it. But I think the, the bit that, that I, I still keep finding in this work is that you sometimes come across, so Amazon, for instance, it sells products, it sells all kinds of products and it facilitates and makes it easier for people to buy all sorts of products. Some of those products are more harmful to human health, to our ecology, to our community cohesion. There's all sorts of things on there, everything you can imagine. They might, and the one things that are harmful might be incredibly profitable. It might be the things that deliver really high sales, really good margins for itself and the vendors that, that are listed on there. What would it take for Amazon to go, hey, actually some of these products, whether it's slightly addictive foods that, that make people unhealthy and, and lose some sense of agency in their consumer choices, 
or it's other products that are, that are, we know in their manufacture are just not going to get to anywhere near the levels of sustainability, let alone regeneration that we need to pursue. What would it take for them to go, actually, we're not going to do this. We're not going to be in service of this. That would hit us profit, right? But its yeah. ability to pursue that discontinuation, to stop doing something that's profitable, is hindered by its desire to make as much profit as possible. And so there is a level of efficiency versus maximization here. Like the pursuit of maximization is the thing that I think holds back to some of the actions that we need of the business world. You mentioned their desire to make as much money as possible. I think it's important to distinguish that from not just being a desire, but also being a legal obligation they have subject to you know, the definitions of our legal systems around the world in terms of what is in the best interest of a shareholder. You said, what does it take? What will it take to get them to say, well, hang on a minute, we're not going to sell that product because it harms people. So what is the instigator for that? And we think that comes down to changing the definition of best interest or changing the definition of fiduciary duty and doing that in a legally binding way. And we have ways we think we can do that. So surely we can leave, if we can legally require companies to consider best interest beyond just this year and next year's profits for their shareholders, but of the world that they're creating for their shareholders to live in in 20, 30 or 80 years time. We grow up and we're taught to invest in our own future that, you know, if we go to school for four years and study hard and sacrifice and don't earn as much money as we could otherwise, that will pave a successful life for us for decades to come. And that studying comes at a cost. And we do that because we know that the future will be better because of it. And yet we don't apply that same standard to companies. If companies are forced to look at the overall best interests of their shareholders, not just in terms of the money they give them every year, but their contribution as a company to increasing the cost of and reducing the experiences of those shareholders through living in a world that company is extracting from, whether it's you know economic, um, environmental, or socially. And we think we could demand that and we could speak with our wallets as consumers by supporting companies. We could ask um, our politicians to change the laws. But there are more of us who don't own shares in the companies that wouldn't actually lose out. So we're the consumers and we could actually achieve that. Whereas I'm not sure that asking, I guess, the company itself or the shareholders themselves to start looking at changing the margin is going to work because they're the ones whose, I guess, noses are perceived to be cut off despite their face. And, but if we change the definition, that opens an interesting conversation. I agree. I think we need to do that. I, the debates I've seen and engaged with around it, around asking or allowing them to consider their impacts, which is what some of the first steps are, and then asking and requiring them to consider their impacts. I think lend to ambiguity, lend itself to ambiguity. I think we need to go further in the language. I think there's probably some legal innovation that needs to happen here to achieve what you're setting out and, and what the goals are of these amazing friends of mine that are involved in the Better Business Act, you know, the efforts in the UK and similar efforts in other places and the benefit corporations, legal forms that have emerged in various jurisdictions, I think it's pushing in the right direction. I don't see that in and of itself changing real decisions in the company. And I think other measures will be needed. A, I think those, the level needs to get to a more meaningful level going beyond asking, um, you know, directors to consider impacts that they have in society and the environment. I think it's, you've got to change the power structure here as well, because they are ultimately appointed by investors and whether it's shareholders or, or private equity or venture capital, if they're accountable to them, 
And then you said, also consider that. Well, they're going to they're gonna consider, well, I considered going for a run this morning and I didn't do it. I considered having a healthier meal yesterday and I didn't do it. You, you need to go beyond just considering, I think, and that, that's where we need legal innovation. That's a lot more that allows to be pinned down. But I think we need to look at this from various angles at the same time. So we need the legal change to happen. But I also think we need to start putting in changes like how do you put nature on the board of companies, worker representations or community representations? How do you make it easier for companies to evolve their ownership structures so that the impact of stakeholders are part of the ownership group, like what you're doing with Merslow? You know, employee ownership is on the rise in lots of countries where they're giving, for instance, a capital gains tax break if you sell your business to an employee ownership trust. And that's led to 37% a year growth rate in the UK for employee-owned businesses, for instance. Canada just brought out a very similar policy package. The US has been doing it, particularly led by Bernie Sanders and others really sort of spearheading this conversion to employee ownership. I think it's it's a mixture of things. I also think that for companies, particularly privately owned and family owned companies who have made a significant amount of money and there's a big family office behind it. And in fact, these are the majority of the world economy, by the way, we talk about listed yeah. companies. Companies are not the majority. It's privately owned companies and of which Family companies are the biggest chunk in terms of total volume of that sector. Well, I think for that, there is a possibility for a significant amount of them when there's generational change to go, look, let's look at steward ownership or let's look at ways to put nature on the board or workers and have a co-ownership structure like Lush is bringing itself into a hybrid model of family and an employee ownership as a way to make itself more resilient. Because I think resilience might be different to short and medium-term profit maximization. So the companies that are able to embed their supplies into their organizational design, into their ownership model, into their board structure, the ones that embed their workers and communities somehow end up with more resilient relationships and a network of solidarity and a network of aligned interests with those stakeholders on which they depend for the company's success, but as well as impact very directly. So I think there is also a case to be made that more resilient companies can start to transition in this direction. Policymakers can make it easier to transition this direction. They can also bring out regulations that regulate all companies to pull it in this way. Financial innovations then I think can get, but I think they're going to feed each other. I I mean, my single biggest learning is that there isn't a single lever. I'm focusing on this enterprise design part because I think it's a bit of a missing bit and it's a growing energy around it. But the other bits need to happen around it as well. Um, But we just need to think bigger and bolder than just purely a company exists to grow the capital of its investors. I think once that is the core purpose of the business, we limit so much of the possibilities that we actually need businesses to pursue. We hear a lot at the moment about employee-owned enterprises, and we both know Marjorie Kelly, who's all about employee-owned companies. And one of the things that I find quite interesting is not many people talk about consumer or customer-owned companies anymore, despite the fact that member-owned banks, credit unions have been around, co-ops have been around for hundreds of years. And yet it's almost like, it's almost as if they're out of fashion, but we're starting to see this trend develop with the narrative changing towards employee ownership. We like the idea of taking that one step further and basically say, just not privately owned by a group of profit maximizing shareholders, but sharing the ownership of any company with 
many and varied stakeholders. And I love the notion of an employee-owned enterprise. But we're actually, because Maslow is going to be consumer or customer-owned, and we would like that sort of number in the billions one day, we had to build a an ownership model that sort of pre prohibited or excluded employee ownership. And that was really interesting because people were like, well, I want to own shares. If I come and work for you, I want to own shares in this company. We're like, well, we can't because the shares that are privately held, like they have a sunset clause. You know, most people who join a startup want to early on want to own shares of it. And you say, well, we can't give you the shares because we're giving them to our customers. And it's really funny. You know, I've probably shot myself in the foot here because no one has a problem with that. <laughs> you know, you said before that people are prepared to go without for, you know, the greater good sometimes. And in this case, you're right. Because a meaning maybe as well, not just greater good, but personal yes, meaning. Like absolutely. we're on this for a short amount of time and we can't take our bank account with us to the, to the other side. So it's your, you know, no one's on their deathbed going, oh, I wish there was an extra zero in my savings account. Like. Well, People, they, they think back at the meaning of what they did in their lives. So you're offering meaning, you're creating a disruption. Like your employees have got an opportunity to be part of building something that might be the pioneer of what the future of the financial industry looks like. You know, this is incredibly powerful. It shifts the narrative in what our economy is and what businesses are for. So I'm not surprised at all that's the case, Kane. So I just want to focus quickly on the finance industry specifically. We talk about you know, social enterprise and we talk about employee-owned enterprise and companies and we talk about social good and all this sort of stuff and not-for-profits and blah, blah, blah. And there's a stone in my shoe and I can't ignore it and it's the finance industry. It underpins everything. And, yep. you know, we believe at Maslow that the finance industry is the key to so many of our problems. It's the largest industry on earth. It now accounts for 25% of global GDP. It's trebled in size in the past 40 years, and there's no evidence that that growth has grown the broader economy, but plenty of evidence that it extracts rent from it. And that's problematic because the finance industry serves all of humanity, but is owned by and run to the benefit of basically about 5% of us. And if we have a look at one of the unique characteristics, well, there's a couple of unique characteristics. One of them is that the finance industry overlays the finance system. And that is a system we are all forced to use if we want to access the global economy. And it's overlaid by this industry that's owned by a few people, extracts from all of us. And as consumers, we experience that through financial products, you know, like insurance, investments, loans, banking, all those sorts of things. But one of the really damaging characteristics of the finance industry is it's the only industry on earth that sells the same thing shareholders want money. It sells money. Insurance sells less expense later on. Loans sell you money now for a fee. Investing hopefully sells you more money later for a fee. It's the only industry on earth where to give either the customer or the shareholder more, it has to be taken from the other side. And that's a fatal flaw. It's this inherent conflict you can't get rid of. And because these companies have a legal obligation to give their shareholders as much money as they can, it creates this cycle of continuing extraction from all of us using these products that just get worse and worse. And given that everything in the world operates through the financial system, whether it's a charity distributing donations overseas and exchanging their currency, whether it's a company selling oil or a teacher in Uganda getting paid by bank transfer, we make the argument that unless you rebuild the finance system and you give ownership of it to more of us than less, then everything else we do to improve the world is a 
bit like putting a Band-Aid on a bleeding artery. If we don't fix the most extractive industry and change who it serves, no matter whether we solve climate or not, we will always be extracted from for the benefit of a few, which will continue to grow inequalities and fuel political extremes. It will continue to erode the fabric of society that we are fast identifying as a risk to our experience here. Everything is influenced by this one system and all efforts to improve the world for the many are doomed unless we address its enormous problems. What would you say to that claim? Um, it's correct. <laughs> it is when you end up in finance, whenever you ask a question about society, about human rights, about our oceans, our forests, our soil, climate, whatever question you ask about society and our ecology, you end up in the finance industry. You end up with a question around why have we built an economy and a business world that is in service of finance rather than finance being a service of the business world that is in service of life, life for humans, life for the planet. Like we've got the whole thing upside down. Everything is in service of finance and the sector. It is the single biggest force that, that is almost so scary to talk about that we don't know how to begin that conversation. I think one of the statements that always makes me sit upright is that we forget economics is a social science and that our economy supports our society. Our society shouldn't support our economy. Our society shouldn't su support the financial interpretation of what economics means for companies and shareholders. We have this society that we're all a part of that informs all of our human experiences. And we should have um, an economic system that harnesses the best parts of humanity instead of extracting from it all for the benefit of a few. No, absolutely. And you know, and I think just after this, I'm about to go to a workshop here in Oxford with some key thinkers and economists on reconceptualizing money and finance, because that is the question that underpins all the other questions, actually. Like, what, what rights do we give to money? What functions are served when it comes in as investment versus expenditure in the real economy? Those are two very different things. It's the same currency that does both things and they're interchangeable, but actually you would design different things for investment in terms of what underpins it in terms of money and currency than you would for spending and the things that oil the wheels of the economy that make it turn and goods and service and being sold and bought. So these are the kinds of questions we need to, we need to unpack. But I think we're at the beginning of that journey. I think the enterprise and the business world has done a pretty good job in the social enterprise movement, steward ownership movement, the, the movement around employee ownership and all the different hybrids and, and zebras and lots of different organizations that are looking at structurally what business is. And now I think the time is ripe to ask these questions of finance, the institutions in the financial sector. And I think you're pioneering a very interesting new model that clearly belongs in the 21st century rather than 20th century, um, but also the system and the networks and the relationships between the players in the financial system. And things get a bit complicated at that point. A lot of our conversation today has, has unpacked things that can go very binary, that can go very much to what is it, the, the obsession with growth of profit or is it about not caring about profit at all? Is it about the pursuit of uh, humans as being greedy or being completely cooperative and about the altruistic? And of course, yes, it lies somewhere in between. It lies in acknowledging that both forces are real, both are parts of it, and we can decide actually how we design the industries, the businesses, the economies that we create as, as you know, participants in order to acknowledge that both 
elements exist that we need to make more profit sometimes in order to be to thrive and do well and satisfy some of our needs, as well as realizing the, the limits of being purely obsessed with that. We need to realize we're, we're competitive and we want to do better as individuals while also realizing that we, we're happier in, in more equal societies. They create more stable environments. They allow for less obsession with consumerism and status anxiety in the pursuit of demonstrating that who's above who. So all of these things, they coexist. And the complexity, I think, is in navigating ways that we can tolerate that and design for it, keep innovating the designs because there isn't a perfect off-the-shelf solution. It's about all of us becoming designers of the economic system that we now need. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if you're interested in hearing more about what Erin is up to, he's pretty active on LinkedIn, so follow him. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality one of humanity's greatest threats today.